Presentation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked. Good evening and welcome to episode 4 of The Bible Unmasked. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, Bible Unmasked is going to be an intensive Bible study that we're, where Plantation Church as a whole will be going through the entire Bible throughout the year 2021. We're really excited to have you guys here with us as we just do a deep dive into everything that the Bible has to say to us and just open our hearts so we can listen and, and, and make sure we take something away. Uh, this week, we have for the first time Pastor Kevin McCoy. Welcome and welcome to Plantation. Thank you. Thank I'm you. happy to be here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And then we have my co-host, Karina Edwards. Karina, welcome. Everyone. Hey. Thank welcome. you. So tonight we're going to be discussing Exodus 5 through Exodus 27. Uh, we have a ton of questions that we received on this one. This one includes, as you know, the Ten Commandments. I mean, literally everyone leaving Egypt. So there's a lot going on in there that we have to discuss. So um, right now... I'm going to ask Karina if you could just pray to open for us, and then we'll begin our discussion. Okay, thank you, Olivia. Um, so wherever you are at this time, please bow your heads with us as we open the prayer. Dear kind and heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together, even though it's virtually. Um, thank you for allowing us to come together to study your word piece by piece so that we can have a better understanding and a better knowledge of what you have to tell us. I ask that tonight you will allow us to just be able to just spread your word in any way, shape, or form, and just help us, oh God, to understand everything that we're reading and those of us who are tuning in to also learn something from this study. This is my prayer, and Jesus' name I pray, amen. 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 So I guess to begin, what we'll do is um, Pastor McCoy, if you could just give us a, I'll say a brief overview of what we read through this week. Um, basically, just a, a synopsis, the cliff note, spark note version of Exodus 5 through 27. So um, my, my good friend, um, uh, um, my good friends rather, uh, the Thomases did a wonderful jo job last week and I was delighted to, to watch the experience. Uh, so picking up where they left off in Exodus chapter 4, uh, and just going back to what they did, what we saw was um, that the, we they engaged the story of the patriarchs, right? Um, how God had this covenant with Abraham, uh, which followed through his his lineage. And here we come to uh, something of a sort of a fulfillment of God's promise, where God promised that the people would multiply, and also that they would be become servants to another foreign people. And that's where we kind of pick up in Exodus chapter 1, and God calls Moses, prepares him to, to lead the people out of, out of slavery. And then now in chapter 5, we begin to have this descending of Moses to engage Pharaoh, and then we have the uh, sort of the battle of the gods, if you were, right? <laughs> the battle of the gods, the god of Egypt, and, 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 the, and the god of, of Israel. Uh, so we find that uh, the story picks up where 
where Abraham was with, with uh, or our series last week, where that was the calling of a, of a person, we now find the calling of a people, right? The Exodus is the, is the, is the calling of a people. And you will see that this, this people is called to become a covenant people as we, we progress throughout this, this, this section of the, of the text this week. Right, they come to Sinai where they where they seal this covenant, where God seals this covenant with them, and then God tells them how to live out this covenant, um, and the details of this covenant as they, they travel to the to the promised land that God has for them. So that's kind of the the, the synopsis of how the the, the, the passage shapes up for, for this week. Nice. Now, that's interesting that you mentioned the the battle of the gods. That's a good way to look at it. Because as I was reading through, I remember there were parts where, you know, Moses would do something and the, the magicians would do something. And it was pretty interesting to kind of see the back and forth there. So that's a nice way to look at it. So honestly, I'll jump right into the questions because we do have a lot. Um, the very first question, very straightforward. Exodus 6-2 says, and God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. What exactly does Yahweh mean? Like, what's the broken down definition of Yahweh, if if possible? So, uh this, this, here we find God kind of introducing God's self uh, by a new name. Uh, going back to, to where God, when, when Moses asks a question, you know, um, what, who should I say send me when the people ask, you know, who is this God? And God says, I'm telling you a name that I was not known by before, right? I am, I am Yahweh. And this is the, the covenant name for God. And the way it is, it is, it is phrased and structured in the text. It, it's it's kind it's it's kind of formulaic, right? In in the sense that I am Yahweh the Lord, and you'll find that whenever God speaks, God speaks with this kind of in, in this formulaic way with Moses, I am the I am Yahweh the Lord, right? Emphasizing um, this kind of covenant nature of God, right? So and and also something to note. Uh, there's a kind of equivalency happening here in the text when it says, I am Yahweh the Lord. Um, you'll find that uh, uh, the, among the Hebrews, they will not dare pronounce the, the covenant or sacred name of God. And so in our Bible, where we have the capitalized Lord, you will find that in the, in the Hebrew text or the text from which we find our, our Bible translated, that would be the... Uh, the kind of sacred, unpronounced name of God. And, uh, you know, theologians have a way of speaking and referring to that, um, what is called the, the tetragrammaton, right? It is this, this kind of abbreviation of YHWH. I'm not sure if you've, I, I, I think you might have seen it before, yeah. right? Where they, they take out the, the vowels because originally in Hebrew, you know, what the, 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 they were those consonants uh, and they were just pointed, you know, going to Hebrew, but uh, the vowels came later on to, to help with pronunciation. And so, but this, this idea of I am Yahweh is emphasizing God as this covenant God who is going to live up to God's name. And we're going to see that throughout this the, the, the story. Uh, what, yes, it is a story of a people, but it is a story of a people that belongs to a God. And this God is, is the God Yahweh who is, is a covenant God. So the next question is asking, does the Lord harden someone's heart and why? Right. So this, this, is, this is a really um, interesting question um, because the, the thought that God 
hardens one's heart also presupposes our, uh, that God can soften one's heart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that the Bible often refers to God's in uh, Moses' engagement and also God's engagement with Pharaoh, in that Pharaoh's heart is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is is saying something about this sovereign God who is also this covenant God who is also a kind of who is also being portrayed through the narrative as a sovereign God, mm-hmm. right? So the question as to does God harden someone's heart? Let's look at how the the, the story and falls, because with each of the plagues, we're going to talk about the plagues a little bit, but with each of the plagues, we find that there's a hardening of Pharaoh's heart um, in response to God's request to let the people go. In, uh, in, the first, in the first plague, it says Pharaoh's heart became hardened, right? That's kind of um, Pharaoh's heart being acted upon, right? And then in, in the second plague, um, Exodus with the frauds, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? And then with the Nazis in, 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 the, in the third plague, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So you're gonna f- we're going to find a kind of interplay between Pharaoh's heart has been acted upon where it is hardened and Pharaoh is voluntarily hardening his heart. So the question comes then, who is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is it God or is it Pharaoh who is hardening God's heart? There is both happening. I would say there's both happening. Because, yes, God has this kind of sovereign power where it's, it's depicted through the story that what God, God says God will do, right? Because that's kind of what the, the Exodus story is about. God is a covenant-keeping God. God says um, to Abraham, I'm going to make you a, a father of many nations. Mm-hmm. Here comes Israel blossoming through, through the, line, the lineage of, of Joseph uh, in, in Egypt and all that. Right, so here's again now. God is kind of showing God's power over our creation, even over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. Remember, I mentioned something about it being the battle of the gods, right? So Pharaoh, Pharaoh's God, who supposedly is directing Pharaoh or in control of Pharaoh, is is finding that God subjected to now the power and the will of Yahweh God, the covenant-keeping God. So in, in the one instance, yes, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. But in another instance, fear is hardening fear's heart because we're going to notice, and uh, if I can just pull my Bible and, and pick at a few instances. Let's, let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 8, uh, verse 2. It says, if you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. Right? This is the second plague. So there's a condition, if. So what that condition suggests is that Pharaoh ultimately had, a ch- had an option. And God was continually giving Pharaoh a chance, an opinion, an option to, to make a decision where is, wherein is, his heart wouldn't be hardened. But the, the hardening of the heart came with, with every neglect of fear to obey God's will. Mm. So in an essence, it is is this obedience that hardens his heart in the process of you know, refusing to, to, to enact God's will of letting God's people go. So yes, there's a sense where God's in God's sovereign power, there is a kind that God is working upon Pharaoh, giving Pharaoh chances, but Pharaoh in his power of choice is choosing, right? He's making that deter- that decision. He's, he's, he's choosing not to obey God and to let God's people go. So does God harden people's heart? Um, I think 
God gives us the opportunity to submit, to come into God's will and to live in this covenant relationship with God. But each time God offers us this grace, this opportunity, this invitation, and we refuse to, to accept it, it becomes easy for us to resist and to, you know, uh, turn away from God. And then in that process, the hardening takes place. So, yes, you're, you're going to find that God fear's heart is acted upon in the text, right? He, it's kind of a passive thing. Fear's heart is hardened. But then there's also the active where fear hardens his heart. Um, and we're going to see that playing throughout, throughout the story as, as we go along. Yeah. That's, that's a big one because you hear about people um, not knowing how to come back. So I guess that would also be kind of a hardening. Would that be a safe way to say that's also maybe a hardening of the heart? We're saying you've drifted away kind of, you know, from God in a relationship with God. Um, so now it's just a more difficult to actually come back. Is, you, is that a safe way to say maybe your heart right, is... Right. So, so the God we serve is, is, this, is, this, is this loving, merciful God. And the only heart that God does not speak to, and by heart I mean the mind. Mm. Well, God speaks to the dead too because God raised Lazarus. But <laughs> the point I'm making is the only one who doesn't hear God's voice asking and this, this, this compassionate, soothing, inviting voice to come into relationship is the one who is resisting, is the one who is turning away because there's always a voice and that voice is always God's voice inviting into this kind, love, loving relationship. And it's the resistance, that, that invitation that, you know, that hardens the heart. Um, God speaks to a friend, a family who has turned away from, from, from walking with God. And, and a family comes and says, you know, God loves you. That, that's God's voice speaking in that moment. Uh, there's someone struggling. They're, they're hearing the voice of God calling them and wrestling um, in that moment to, to, to accept. And, and, you know, as I think of this, I think of my own life, you know, um, my own coming into faith, uh, into, into Christianity. Uh, growing up in Jamaica, um, I mean, Jamaica is, I, wasn't, I wouldn't say in uh, a religious society as such, but, you know, we, 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 we love our God, you know, we love to, to claim God. But when, when the call of God was heavy on my heart, and man, I'm telling you, I was, I wanted the kind of validation from my friends to say, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, go ahead and do it. I wanted validation to know, to give my heart. I wanted my, that acceptance from my friends to, and it wasn't coming. And, you know, God was speaking to me, the heavy, that, that heavy call, that, 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 that weight of love and compassion and calling was on my heart. And when I said to my friends, you know, um, Man, I think I'm going to give my heart to God and become a Christian. You know, I was laughed at, you know, <laughs> I was laughed at. Um, but God, but God didn't stop calling. Mm -hmm. God never stopped calling. And with each call, I, I started letting loose. I started taking one step closer, one step closer. And that's how I came to faith in Christ. God is always calling, always, always calling. So the next question we have is, is Exodus 7, 20 and 20 through 22, 21 through 22. Um, it says, so Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them as Pharaoh and all of his officials watched. Aaron raised his staff and struck the water of the Nile. Suddenly the whole river turned to blood. The fish in the river died and the water became so foul that the Egyptians couldn't drink. 
Then it says, there was blood everywhere throughout the land of Egypt. Then it said, but again, the magicians of Egypt used their magic and they too turned water into blood. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He refused to listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord predicted. So this is one of those, like, is this an inconsistency in the Bible? Because it says, if there was blood everywhere throughout the land of Egypt, where did the water come from that the magicians then turned to blood? So here's, here's, how, I here's how I read the text. As I looked at it, I'm looking at the site of the striking, uh, the, site, the, site of, the site of the conflict uh, seemed to be at the River Nile, right? Because it says, as Pharaoh and all his officials watch, uh, Aaron raised his staff and struck the water of the Nile. So is there a inconsistency between water of the Nile versus all the land, all the, the waters in the land, throughout the land? That for me is, is still a guess, but, but here's what I would say. Beyond the, the, the idea of they found some fresh water to turn into, into blood. Um, you know, what's happening here is, is really the conflict that we should, we should look at, right? The conflict between, and we're, I think we're going to get to it. We're, we're, there's magic versus miracle, right? And, and God's working versus the, the God versus the God of Egypt, the God of Egypt working. But this idea of water being available after, you know, Moses and Aaron performed the miracle. It, I would say possibly that the, the, the site that was turned to blood was the Nile, as referred to it in the text, you know, that the, the, the water of the Nile, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be the, the, the main channel or waterways that lead into the city. You know, I can, the text doesn't give me enough information to, 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 to respond and answer that. Um, but what I would say is that um, what we're seeing is the working out of a power struggle between the gods. That's, that's where I want to zoom in on the text. Is there, is there fresh water somewhere? Possibly. Um, how is it there? Unfortunately, I'm not able to, to really zoom in and, and, and provide a def definitive answer on that. But the, the point is there's a battle happening and, and we're, we're, it's intensifying as, as the, the, the conflicts um, rage. It's kind of a follow-up on that topic. Um, there's a question that says, if magicians can reproduce some of God's miracles, how do we distinguish true miracles from magic? All right. So I'm going to try and use the example of the plagues themselves, right, to, 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 to bring this to, to bear. As the plagues um, increased in number, they, be, they began to become specific where God started allowing the, the, the effects of these plagues to affect only the Egyptians rather than the people of Israel and Egypt at, at once, right? So God's miracle was happening on behalf of the people of Israel, God's covenant people, right? So that's where I want to, I want to zoom in on the, the idea of miracle. It was in a redemptive, protective, salvific manner on behalf of the people of Israel. So while it was afflicting the, 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 the Egyptians, the miracle, it wasn't happening to the, to the Israelites. So that's where I want to name the miracle coming in, right? The miracle. Um, in terms of the magic, you'll find that there are things that, the plagues that, that, that God commanded that the, that the 
Egyptians themselves couldn't reproduce, <laughs> right? Right. And so here we find here we find again kind of the distinction, distinguishing between this this power of magic and the power of miracle. Miracle being that attributed to God and magic attributed to the gods of the gods and the priests of Egypt, right? So if it is miracle, it should kind of be able to re be reproduced and also kind of have the same protective, um, salvific, redemptive effect as those of, of, of what God, uh, Moses and Aaron is doing on behalf of God. So if you go to the New Testament, let's just jump to the New Testament in Jesus's, in Jesus's um, performance of miracles also. And also in the book of Acts, um, also where uh, the story where that they saw the disciples casting out demons, right? Mm -hmm. And this person says, listen, if you do it in the name of Jesus, I can do it too. And they come and says, in the name of Jesus, and guess what happened? <laughs> you know, right? The demons overtook them and, and gave them a good spanking, yeah. right? And so, so while there are miracles and magic, the, 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 the miracle comes with the, the, the divine authority and backing of God. Right? It comes with the authentic power of God working on behalf of God's people for deliverance, for redemption, for salvation. And the idea of magic, it's more for a show of power, right? It's more for a show of power than it is acting on behalf of people for, for their good, I would say. Mm -hmm. so I, I do remember reading a commentary that said something, um, that the magicians if they were, you know, truly working on like behalf of gods or something like that, correct me if I'm wrong, but they said something like they would have been able to remove the plague as opposed to use like illusions and trickery. Right, right. So, but yeah, I, I don't remember the commentary I was reading, but I do recall reading that on, on, so what you said makes sense. It wouldn't have, it's not redemptive. It's just definitely a copycat kind of. Okay. All right. So then. Ooh, this next one's a little bit deep. The verse, it doesn't give a specific verse, but it says, did God himself kill the firstborns of the Egyptians? All right, so this this is an, an interesting one, right? <laughs> right? I guess so, my follow-up would be, and why, if so. So I'm going to add that in there. Just so to... did God kill himself kill the firstborn of Egypt? Mm -hmm. Now, this is a question of um, what theologian call, theologians call theodicy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this, this um, I think it was John Hick, um, in John, John Hick, I think, in his definition says, this idea of theodicy, it's an attempt to, to reconcile the, the goodness of an all-powerful God in the midst of the reality of evil, right? How can this all-powerful God of goodness, of love and mercy exist with this reality of evil? How can good and evil coexist then? That, that's what, you know, the wrestling of that theologian just referred to as what is called theodicy. So, bear with me, and, and here, here's how I'm going to attempt to respond to this, okay? Um, so, Exodus 13, 15, let me read it for you. Mm -hmm. When Pharaoh, so, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed, and my Bible is, 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 is showing me that the capital, capitalized Lord, capitalized L-O-R-D, which mm -hmm. I referred to earlier as the covenant name of God, Yahweh, right? Mm -hmm. So the covenant God killed the firstborn 
all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Um, so did God kill the firstborn? Yes. 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 God killed. God did kill the firstborn. Um, but again, look at how it escalated. Look at how it developed. There was always an opportunity um, for this to be prevented, right? And in one sense, I'm, I'm kind of defending God's action, and I'm, and I'm, I'm saying it clearly. In one sense, I'm trying to defend God's action, um, you know, in killing them, right? Um, but, but go back again in, in, in Genesis 6, where, where God, by natural forces, in a sense recreated, uh, um, destroyed the earth and had a new creation. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we have a creation story. Mm -hmm. in, in Genesis 6, we have a new creation story again. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in Exodus, we're going to find ourselves wrestling again with a new creation story. But at this time, it's the creation of a people. I mentioned that earlier, right? It's, the, it's this creation of a covenant people. But notice something about the beginning of Exodus, right? When, here's how God's people was punished drastically in the first place. When, when uh, they couldn't find Moses as a child, what, what did Pharaoh command? What did the Pharaoh at the time command? Hmm. The killing of what? Killing of all the firstborn children. First, right. The killing of all the firstborn. Mm -hmm. Right. Hmm. Pharaoh commanded the killing of all the firstborn Hebrews, right? Um, as an act of rebellion again, as it were, against God, right? Because this is, this is God's covenant people, and you're, you're killing, you're reacting to God through the treatment of God's covenant people, right? And so what we're finding here is kind of a, and you're going to see this in the, in, the, in the laws that God, in the book of covenant, um, beginning from... Exodus 20 to 24, right? That's called kind of the book of covenant where God kind of lays out the, 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 the principles of the covenant relationship between God and the newfound community of Israelites. So what you're going to find in that is a command for an eye for an eye, a life for a life. What you find is this kind of retributive just, justice. So Pharaoh killed God's firstborn children, but also... Israel is referred to as God's firstborn. So God's firstborn is being held in captive. Mm. And God is saying to Pharaoh continually, let my people go. Let my firstborn go. But, but Pharaoh, hardening his heart, would not let God's firstborn Israel go. So God says, here what? Since you will not let my firstborn go, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you feel what it feels like to be without my firstborn in the kind of relationship I want to be my first, with my firstborn. I want my firstborn Israel to come to be let out and come and worship me. Mm -hmm. But here you have them in captive. So here's what. I'm going to allow you to feel what it feels like to be separated from my firstborn. I don't have my firstborn, so here's what. I'm going to take your firstborn. And not just the firstborn of your people. I'm going to personally lay my hand on you in this thing. Right? And I'm going to take your firstborn. So, so there is in the sense where God is demonstrating God's sovereignty and also God's justice. So in one sense, it's an act of justice, and, and I can only say it as the Bible portrays it. 
-hmm. I can only portray it as the Bible, Bible records it, right? Um, this is an act of, of justice on behalf of God's people. God's people were, 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 were slaughtered and Pharaoh resisted the grace of God um, in his hardening of his heart. And God says, here then is the judgment of your resisting my will. Here then is the judgment of your hardened heart. Here then is justice, right? The firstborn of your people will die so that my firstborn can be set free. It is a, it is a hard fact to take, um, but when you're considering it in, 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 a, in a greater light of this battle of the gods idea, right? This idea of which God is supreme, which God is sovereign, which God is is more powerful, which God, because if, if the, the, the thinking around those times were, if my people defeat your people, then my God is greater than your God. Mm -hmm. Because it, it's, this was a, a theocratic environment, right? Um, it was a rule of the gods, right? It was a rule of the gods. And if my people, if, if as, as a king, I can overcome your people, guess what? My God is greater than your God. And that is why you find in that pluralistic society that many, many people had many gods, right? Because if, if as Israelites, you, we were captured, then we would ask also in, con, in, in conjunction with serving our God, we have to, have to serve the God of our captors. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what, you know, promulgated this pluralistic society. But you'll find Israel through this, engagement with God coming out and as a monotheistic community, this community that, that, that recon, recognizes this one sovereign God and that this one sovereign God cho chooses Israel as his covenant people to demonstrate the uniqueness uh, of this God's being among all other gods. And that's kind of what the story is, is, is about, you know? Yeah. No, as you're explaining it, see, even I don't think I've heard it explained in that much depth. Because I think the, the right, right. I don't think I have. So I think the catch for me with when I hear like, okay, and then God killed all the firstborns, and it's just hard a hard pill to swallow because we're so used to focusing on, I'll say, just the New Testament teachings, you know, where it's love one another, turn the other cheek. If your neighbor does this, let them, you know, don't who can throw the first stone, you know. So it's just such a stark contrast between you know the old testament and the new testament and we get this bird's eye view of everything you know the people at that time what they knew was that that eye for an eye kind of society so it it makes more sense when you i'll say package it package is a terrible way it makes it that's like fine that's fine that's fine yeah but you know what i mean it it, it yeah, makes no, no, sense yeah. you understand what i'm trying to say but now that you've put it in the context that, of the time i want to add i want to add something to that mm -hmm. as we as we do a close reading of, of the, the say for, so just, just, just take, for instance, the first five books of the Bible, right? The Pentateuch. You'll find, yes, there is the presence of an adversary. You'll find the, the devil, you know, in the beginning. But as you read throughout the story, consider the interaction between God and the people. And you're going to find it in, in, in Exodus and you're going to find it in Deuteronomy. Where... It is how people relate to God's requirements, the covenant relationship that brings good or brings evil. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have the, the, these, these kind of laws of the blessings and you're gonna find, you're gonna have the chapters on the blessings and the curses, right? Um, because God is this supreme being who is responsible for everything that happens. 
right? So very rarely, and I might say, let me just stick with very rarely, right? <laughs> very rarely will you find that the cause of evil is, 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 this, is the devil. Mm. Very rarely you'll find the cause of evil is from evil or the, from the devil. What you'll find that the cause of evil is disobedience, right? Mm, okay. The cause of evil is disobedience. You're going to find that because in the covenant relationship, right, there, there are blessings and there are curses, and you're going to find that you obey, you are blessed. You disobey, you are cursed. That's kind of how the relationship is negotiated in the covenant relationship between God and the Pentateuch. Um, just wanted to, to just a bit highlight that. <laughs> you do kind of notice that when you're going through Exodus. I remember I read something and I was like, if they don't do this, these tiny things, they cut off from the whole community. You know, like I was just like, that seems a little extreme. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we'll definitely have to delve more into that one because I, I, I do have questions in some of those in some of those regards. Mm -hmm. um, oh, Karina, go ahead with the next one. Sorry. Um, yeah, sure. So this is from Exodus 12. Um, if Passover is a law for all time, a permanent law that we should keep forever, an everlasting ordinance, shouldn't we keep it today? So I'm going to do something that, well, not many people disagree with me in doing this. Um, but some theologian will say that I'm, I'm performing an act of an act of anachronism, right? Bringing things into places where they not necessarily belong. But here's what I'm going to do. Uh, the Passover, how... So, the Bible is, is in... And I'm, I'm, and I'm trying to present the Bible in, in, from different angles and different ways. But from a covenant perspective, right? You have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Noe covenant, right? Abrahamic... Um, First, no, the Noah Covenant, right, where God makes a covenant with Noah. You have the Abrahamic Covenant, where God makes an, a, a, a covenant with Abraham. Then you have the Sinaitic Covenant. We're going to go to that soon, where God makes a covenant with, with, with Israel. And then you're going to find that God brings a new covenant in Christ, right? There is a, a new covenant in Christ. And with each covenant, the, with each covenant, it is renewed and the requirements are intensified, right? And... That's going to take us into something different and more intensive tense. But just for a second, let me just mention um, the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins to reinterpret or intensify the, the, the meaning and the demands of some of the, co the covenant requirements, right? So Passover, the Passover covenant remains with us in the way that Jesus interpreted it for us, right? In John... 13, 14 there, where Jesus tells them, you know, he's, he's, he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he says to them, this is how you will celebrate it now. You'll break bread, and you will do this in remembrance of me, right, in celebration of his death. Because we know the Passover lamb was killed because the blood was going to be used um, to, as, a, as a means of protection, right? And Jesus has this as, as the fulfillment of the, of the Passover promise, right, um, says to us now that we celebrate the Passover, but we celebrate it anew in this way. When you drink this wine and you eat this bread, you do it in remembrance of me, in, in remembrance of my blood now that was spilled 
um, for your protection and for your salvation. So do we celebrate it? Should we keep it? Yes, in the way that Jesus inv invites us and commands us to keep it. That's how I would respond to that question. We, we keep the Passover in the way that Jesus has reinterpreted and intensified it for, or, for, or, for us today. There's one question I did want to touch on because I've heard people say this. Mm -hmm. It says in Exodus 20 overall, if we are saved by grace, why should we keep the Ten Commandments? So let me take it from, let me answer this question contextually because that's exactly what happened with the Israelites. Mm. The Israelites were first saved and then they were given into, they were, they were brought into a covenant relationship. By saving, I mean being liberated from slavery. Right? Because you're going to find that the, the, the Exodus story becomes the, the controlling story for the Israelite history, for the identity, for the formation, for the understanding of God, for the understanding of themselves. Because as I said, here is where the Israelite community comes into being as God's chosen people. Right? Here's where the covenant is really manifested that God made with Abraham. Right. So God, God now, uh, the people have been multiplied in Egypt so much so that they, the, 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 the Egyptians are fearful of them. They, they enslave them. Right. So part of the promise is fulfilled. The people, has, the people have multiplied. The act of, the act of liberation is the act of, of saving. Right. So delivering them from, 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 from slavery is an act of saving them. So God saves them. Right. Prior to, to verse, to, in, you know, verses 15, 16, 17, coming up, 18, 19. But then in verse 20 is where God gives them the commandments. So God's, God first saves them, then gives them commandments. So if we are saved by grace, why should we keep the commandments? We should keep them because we are saved. That, that's just a simple matter of the fact. You are brought into a covenant relationship. You are saved into a covenant relationship. And each covenant has to be regulated. Each relationship, you know, um, like, like, a, like a marriage or any, any a business relationship, any relationship has kind of, these kind of principles on which they operate, mm -hmm. right? For success and if, and if not followed for failure, right? So we are saved by grace, yes, but in order for us to remain in this to honor for us to honor the, the, the save or saved status for us to to celebrate and to honor the, the, the God who has saved us we live in a covenant relationship with that God in obedience to the, um, the, 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 the regulations and also because we want to be blessed and, and that's simply how the Old Testament puts it you keep these commandments simply because there's no going around it. You don't pray. You don't do anything. You keep them. If you want to be blessed, keep them. That's how it says it, right? Mm. You keep them. You're blessed. You don't. You're cursed, right? Mm. So, so why do we keep the commandments? We keep them in honoring or covenant relationship with God. It's, it's saying, as we know, how the commandments are already, you know, the, the first four is recognizing our relationship with God. The, the, the last recognizes our, our relationship with, with, with each other. It is about honoring the relationship that we, this newfound relationship that we have. It is saying, I respect it, I value it, and I want to cherish it. That's what commandment keeping is about. It is, like you mentioned, okay. it's very similar. Go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so this question I actually found very interesting. Um, Exodus 21, 7, 
it says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. So does this mean that God is sexist and does he discriminate against women? Ooh. <laughs> That's a good one. Let's hear this one. All right. So let me, let me yeah. read it in context, right? So this is a law concerning, concerning slaves. We're talking about slaves here. So, um, so if you notice, look at the word it says a male slave is, right? So if a male slave comes, if, a, if, a, if one has a male slave, and that male slave has a family, um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing and summarizing, that family becomes the property, sorry to say like that, but the property of the, of the master, right? And um, it says that, but if the slaves are clear, I love, so if, if, if his master gives him a wife and she bears sons and daughters, the wife and children are, shall be, the, be her, her masters and he shall go alone. So this is kind of a, this is something I, I, I let me just say this. this. This idea of slavery is a touchy topic for me um, because of my my leaning in, into matters of race relations, right? Um, so I'm, I'm trying to just lay it aside, which is very difficult to do in this moment to to respond to this, right? Um, yeah, I was gonna say to be fair, I do remember reading that Hebrews weren't necessarily slaves because of race. They they could be slaves right. to get crime and other right, 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 right. So, right. so I'm bringing in my own experience in it, which yeah. is which okay. is is almost impossible not to do, right? If I'm gonna be true to who I am as I read it, read read Bible. Um, but let me try and and, and package this in a in a way. Right, let me just go back again to. Genesis, God created male and female in God's image. This is kind of a bit of theologizing, uh, moving away from the passage, but it's, it's, it's necessary. Um, God's original intent and God's creative order was that each human being is equal in God's sight. Now, as a result of disobedience, again, right, there is this disruption, right? There's this disruption of God's order of the world. There comes in this kind of the, the, the reality of evil, which takes place. And this, I would, I would, though it is in the ordinances, right? These are the ordinances that are, that are written out. You'll find that this is in the ritualistic, the cultic setting, and you know, in, in the how they negotiated relationships between master and slave, mm-hmm. right? So let me go to it now. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, he shall not, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. It's in comparison to the male slave, as I read a while ago, right? In the passages before, so we have to take that into consideration. If she does not please her master who designated her for himself, then he will let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has dealt unfairly with her. So when a man sells his daughter as a slave, and notice what it says, when a man sells his daughter, as you recognize a while ago, it was not a matter of race relations or anything like that. Um, it was this man for me for profiteering gain, he, you know, for difficulties of, of financial difficulties or whatever reasons, he sells his daughter into slavery, right? So there were conditions it's suggesting on which slaves would be free. The male would be free on the condition that, you know, uh, he, he, he bears 
he has a family and the masters the masters a lot of slaves would not be diminished by him leaving right right but here because the the, the woman right in essence is more I, I, I hate to use this language but i'm trying to find better language forgive me mm-hmm. but the the, the the woman is better able to propagate and to increase his stock right increase his property it's yeah. more difficult and there there are more stringent rules for him letting her go now the, the, the one the condition on which he would let her go is if he mistreats her is god sexist no um first and foremost what is god's gender i want someone to tell me because i don't know um but what is clear to me is that i am no more valuable and let me say it in 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 the positive we are all valuable in god's sight we are the same i am of the same value as you are i am worth the blood of christ you are worth the blood of christ right um so in the in this idea of of slavery it was a matter of control it was a matter of propagating one's wealth and you can see where i'm kind of tense with this question it's it is <laughs> and I mean open and honest with you this is kind of this is a picky word for me right so I'm tiptoeing as I answer this one because I, I want to say it's, I want to I just want to blast it but I can't, you know? I can't. so like to follow so actually to kind of follow up on that because yeah. now that we're in the old testament and things of that nature is it it seems that there are a lot of cultural rules and regulations so is it fair to assume that some of these things are cultural and not applicable to the times that we are living in? So here here's here's how I would say that. Um and there are people who would disagree with me when I when I say this that as you read the Bible you'll find that it's a ma- it was the stories the main char- let me start from the characters the main characters in the stories are males the main reporters of the stories are males um and so you'll find it suggests to me and others will say it's not suggesting it's it's evident that this was a a, a, a patriarchal society a male dominated society and so even the idea that man was made from man was made first before woman mm-hmm. um you know people looked at that would say okay and the idea that god you know after sin you know you should be subjected to, to to your husband and you know stuff that may um evil subjected to her husband because of, of sin and all of this i'm going back again to the covenant there is a new covenant under christ mm-hmm. and when paul says that in christ there is no jew nor greek nor male nor female he is not disregarding our gender mm-hmm. he's not disregarding our our unique cultures in which we grew up because that's that's the makeup of the world we are we are culturally conditioned all of us and the bible itself is a culturally conditioned book it is a jewish book right and it's going to the question about are we israelites or not are we not israelites <laughs> we, we can jump to that question immediately too right yes. but yes we can right yeah <laughs> <laughs> the idea is the idea is that um 
we have to, re we, we have to, here's how, let me, let me say it this way. And I, and I, and I can't but use myself um, because that's what the gospel asked me to do. Apply it to myself first. I am a black Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Now you'd ask, why would you identify? Why would you say you are, why would you, why wouldn't you say you're a Christian? Because I am black. <laughs> I'm not going to ignore that. That, that's who I am. And my blackness means some, something in the society in which I live. It means something. Mm -hmm. right? Whether if, I, if I want to ignore it, there's someone else who's going to recognize it and make meaning of that for me. So what I do, I make meaning of it for myself. What does it mean for me to be black, a male, and a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Well, Paul says, I should not ignore these. But as far as my salvation is in Christ, and as far as we relate to each other, these are not important, these are not significant when, we, when, we, when it comes to treating each other equal. We take these as a point of the vision. Mm. I'm a male, you're a female, you're black, I'm white. We take these as points of the vision rather than looking to our common source of origin, right? <laughs> we are all from God. Uh, male, female came from God. If we look to our common source of origin, then we can find a point of unity, a point of commonality, a point that unites us rather than divides us. Mm -hmm. I was raised by um, two very strong women. Mm. I, and so I, I have a, a certain kind of, not a certain kind, I have the utmost respect for, for women. Um, I was raised by my mother, a teenage mother. I was raised by a, a grandmother um, who was very hardworking, dedicated, committed, and gave me all the opportunities in life that, I didn't have a father to, 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 to give me, right? And so when it comes to this equality in Christ and even, you know, this equality of beings, right, of, of males and females, um, you're going to find me coming down very hard, <laughs> hard on that. Yeah. Right, let, let me stop. Let me stop. Let me stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, actually, that is a good segue into the question about are we the Israelites? So um, I mentioned a question earlier that basically said, when you look at the Bible and you see the Israelites' stubbornness and their reluctance to, I mean, I, I mean, I, I specifically recall reading the part where the, the angel of the Lord, like, literally was in front of them, gave them light by night and, and moon by day, I mean, and, and darkness by day so they could be cool and walk. And then even when the Pharaoh's armies were coming, the, arm, the angel of cloud literally moved behind them to block them. And then literally they got across the sea and started complaining, like, is God with us or not? And I was like... Yeah. <laughs> We're not that bad. We're not that bad. You know, yeah. like it, it really, that one actually got me. I, I started like writing in caps, like we we can't be the Israelites. So like this kid, this doesn't make sense. Cause, but then I'll be honest, I do start thinking about sometimes we get our little miracles day by day and, and prayers answered day by day. And still the next day we say, God, are you really going to help me pay this bill? So I kind of started to make the connection, but I did want to get some clarification on that one because I mean, they literally saw God, like they saw this angel in cloud moving around and they're like, but this water is not sweet. And I'm like, what? so I just, I would just like to get some, so a little bit of. I want to respect and honor the, the history that we have, we have inherited as Christians from our Hebrew and, and Israelite people. Um, they have given us our rich heritage as Christians because Christ himself was a Jew, right? Um, and so by by definition, we are Gentiles, right? We are not Jews. 
and I wouldn't want to say we behave like and, and the reason why I resist saying that we have is that is that behavior because it's, it's sometimes it's sound you know pejorative in a pejorative way but I would say that we have human behavior right it's it's human to to resist because when Adam and Eve sinned they weren't they weren't Jews they weren't <laughs> they weren't Jews but they disobeyed <laughs> right um uh to Babel um uh, the people of not of Noah, the, the, the people of Noah's days, they, they were human. They, they just resisted God's will. Um, so are we Israelites in how we behave? We are human in how we believe, behave. Israelites behave like some humans who were uh, disobedient. And as humans, we find ourselves in that vein too, being ungrateful and stuff like that. But Paul, Paul says, because... We, we have inherited a spiritual heritage from the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Christ being, a, being of, of the house of Israel, you know, of David, and going back to the, the son of Abraham, and even going back to the gospel to tell us going back to Adam, right? Paul says that we be careful. We, we, and he used the analogy of being grafted in, in a plant, one plant being grafted into another, to say that, remember that we, we the Gentiles, you and I, um, should not think ourselves more than the, the, the Jews because we are engrafted into this, this tree, this plant, this, 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 this stem of Israel, right? This trunk, we're engrafted. And if God can cut off Israel, in a sense, right? What do you think might happen to us, right? <laughs> and so, and so the, the responsibility, the covenant responsibility that was upon Israelite is upon us in a renewed way and in a more intensified way. And it goes to Jesus and the, and the Sermon on the Mount, right? You don't have to, you don't have to kill, just be angry and, and you're in trouble, right? <laughs> you don't even have to be angry and you're in trouble. You don't even have to commit adultery, you just you just even have to, to think it and it's, and it's done, right? So it's kind of an intensification of the requirements for us as Christians. So there's a lot of responsibility which we have in terms of this covenant relationship. And I'm keeping this idea of covenant, this theme of covenant going because it's, it's, it's in the text that we're, it's in the passages that we're studying, right? So we, 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 we I'm, I'm missing quotes for a reason. We are, we are spiritual Israel. And I know I just said something, but we are spiritual Israel in the sense that we, we, are, we are beneficiaries. We are inheriting uh, the covenant. We are, we, are, we are inheriting from the, blessed, from the blessings of Abraham. That's, that's the reality. Okay. Right. We are in, we are inheriting we are inheriting um, part of Abraham's blessings, and so in a sense, um, we are a part of the we are a part of it, quote unquote, spiritually, right? But in Christ, again, I'm going to echo this again in Christ, right? There's no Jew, there's no Greek. We are one. We are the saved in Christ. That's that's what we are. Biggest thing for me was. How could they not know that God was with them? And are we the same? You know, so I think that was the 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 premise. So knowing that we all truly have inherited God's covenant and blessing, then that answers my question completely. Right. It's just, it's just always hard to read when you're reading about the Israelites and just all they saw, like, with their eyes clearly as day. And then they complained, like, 10 seconds later to the point where God was like, what are they complaining about? You know, so... I, I like to get a little deeper insight on that one. So, so just to draw, just to draw a narrative line through our text. Um, here, here you have. Last week, the the covenant with 
a family, right? This the Abraham, the Abrahamic family, you know, from Abraham down to Isaac, down to Jacob, down to Joseph in Egypt. They multiply um, a full a part of God's covenant promise that, that Abraham's seed will be, you know, will be multiplied. But then you find that God, it's moving away. It's it's the scope of God's relationship is moving away from a family to a people. And then you're going to find it comes into the Gentiles, as, as I just mentioned, right? So in the narrative line of Exodus, um, slavery, uh, um, liberation, so slavery, liberation, salvation. And then we come to 20, 20, chapters 21 to 24, we have the Book of the Covenant. We have the Ten Commandments and we have, you know, other, other laws and stuff, which are meant to regulate the relationship, the covenant relationship. As, as Christians today, this model remains for us. And I want to bring that in. We are still in a covenant relationship with the covenant God who has laid out for us principles. And if you notice, God is actually, I'm going to start using, switch to another, another image or, or symbol of explaining from covenant to kingdom, right? You're going to find that God is actually building a kingdom, right? Because you're going to find that as we move from Exodus to the, to the conquest, um, they capture the land and then they become this, this massive kingdom, this, 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 this kingdom, you know, and a Saul and David. Then you find in the New Testament now, Jesus comes um, uh, embracing this, this idea of kingdom and then teaches kingdom principles, right? Which, which the Sermon of the Mount outlines, right? Kingdom principles. For us today, the covenant relationship slash kingdom principles remain for us to live out our relationship with God and among each and among each other. Right. So so that responsibility that that I don't want to say that burden, that responsibility remains with us to honor the covenant relationship we have with God, um, which also dictates a covenant relationship with, with, with us as human beings. Right. So kind of drawing for a narrative line um, to make the connection for us today. Um the next question. Um, it's from Exodus 16, verse 23. It says, does the bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil regulation apply to today's celebration of the Sabbath? Are we allowed to cook a small dish on a Sabbath or is all cooking forbidden? I'm going to lay out, a, 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 lay out how, we, how as Seventh-day Adventists we, 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 so let me, let me move from this. I'm a biblical to the Seventh Adventist to giving you permission in your relationship with God, and and that's what Christianity is, right? And, and this is gonna, yeah, this is what Christianity is. To how you honor how God is speaking to you and how where your conviction is, where your relationship is with God, right? The people are traveling; they're hungry. God sends bread from heaven, and there's um, kind of a command as to how they go about preserving and eating and all of that, right? So here's what it says in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omer apiece. When all the leaders of the congregation came out and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has command. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, the holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you bake today and boil what you want to boil. And all is over, put aside to keep until tomorrow. So 
on the sixth day, right? <laughs> Moses says to them, whatever you do, do it today. <laughs> you boil what you have to boil today, cook what you have to cook today, because tomorrow, so the day that Moses was actually referring to was not the Sabbath. Hmm. It was actually the sixth day of gathering. That's, that's the biblical perspective in the covenant relationship with Israel. Right? And let me, let, me just, let me just say this. And this is my personal belief. And some will disagree, some will agree with me. There is no one-to-one correspondence between how, in certain circumstances, in how the Israelites lived, all these principles, and how we are asked to live them out. Um, say, let me ask. Let me just give, a, give an example to show them. I'm, I'm trying to explain. If I was walking with Moses, I wouldn't ask Moses to say, Moses, um, what time is your... your, 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 your Fitbit or your Apple Watch or your G-Shock or what time is your watch saying, Moses? Moses will look at Moses. Moses wouldn't know what I'm talking. Moses doesn't know what the watch is. Moses does not know what a watch is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that I can just lift my hand and see the time. Moses might be thinking about the watches of the day. He's thinking about checking the sundial or some. I don't even know he he had sundial. But there's so much effort in going to find the time, the simple thing as the time. Mm, mm-hmm. Preparing a meal was not an easy task. Listen, in Jamaica, when I was growing up, I don't, I'm not telling my age, but I remember, right, when my grandmother was cooking around the wood, the, the, the wood fire, I had to go, a matter of fact, days before, or weeks, or even months before, we would go chop some wood, Chop some trees down, put them down for them to dry so that they become firewood. Mm-hmm. And when it's time to cook, we go get the firewood, put three stones together. We get some matches, some stick of matches. We get probably, if we have cursed oil, God bless us if we had the cursed oil, but we had to get some plastic. We lit the plastic bag or something, drop it on the, on the firewood for it to start catching. We, catch, we get some thinner, um, maybe some grass or something. We call it bramble. To catch, are you getting the picture of what I'm talking about? No. To make fire was a, a tedious task. Much more to go ahead and cook a meal was a very, it was a labor. That's the point I'm making, right? It was labor. Yeah, to cook a meal today is it labor. For some would say yes, for some would say no, right? I leave it up to you and yeah. your conscience and your, your understanding of your relationship with God. Um, some will say, I microwave a meal, that's it. <laughs> you know, some people say, I, I put on a fire, I warm it up, that's it. The point I'm making, there's no one-to-one correspondence in how, in all circumstances, in how Israel lived and how we are required to live today. The, the, the development of technology, which is a blessing and a gift of wisdom from God, I think God will, will invite us to use to our best uh, and, and um, to use for benefit, you know, so... Okay, so so that my means brother, my sister, <laughs> are safe. All right, anyone listening? No, I'm just kidding. 
I was thinking, I was like, maybe you could just use the slow cooker, the rice cooker, the <laughs> press a button, walk away, you know, yeah. you know, is that, is that gray or, but I think we're okay. I think you got your slow cooker, you, you know, you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess this is the last question. Um, this one is, I, this one I think is a pretty big one. So when the earthly sanctuary was functional. Did God have, I'll say, two residences, one in heaven and one on earth? Is that, because you know, the holy place, most holy place, is that now, you know, how does that work? Right. So, and this is a big question because we're, we're entering into Jewish, Jewish cosmology, right? We're entering into Jewish cosmology. Um, um, where, because you'll find, you'll find, uh, it, the psalmists say that the earth is the Lord's footstool, right? It, it, it's speaking about the inability to contain God, right? Um, in any defined space. Um, and you'll hear that between this, this conversation between uh, David and God and even Solomon and God when they're erecting the, this, this massive edifice, right? Um, which is building upon this one, right? So did God have two in place? Um, God is not limited. God is not limited by time and by space. And so God is where God, God is God. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the thing that God was telling Moses when he said, I am that I am, right? Or I will be that I will be, right? Or, I'm this Yahweh God, right? It's, it's, it's emphasizing the, the, the big the bigness of God, the inability to contain God or restrain God from, from being who God wants to be. So I'm, I'm, I'm making that point to say that God chose, God chose, and you mentioned it, right? God chose to travel with Israel in, 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 the, in the cloud by day and the fire by night. God chose to manifest God's self in those ways, right? So if, 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 if we say that God... Uh, was dwelling in, when, when God was dwelling in heaven, God wasn't in the temple, or when God was in, in, in the temple, God was also in heaven. We're asking a, a, a question about God's omnipresence, right? We're, at, we're, we're kind of touching on whether God's omnipresence, and we're also talking about Jewish cosmology. Is, is the earth big enough to hold God? Is what is what is the makeup beyond the earth and all of that? Um, but my simple question, I, pro, I know I problematize that a, a bit, but my simple answer to that will be God is. God is. God is where God is. God is who God is. My my simple response to that is God is. Right. God is in the temple. God is in heaven. God is with me. God is with you. God is. Mercy. I think that's actually a beautiful way to end this week's um, Bible and Mass Bible study with just knowing that God is. He is. He's with us. Honestly, everywhere we go and throughout everything that we're doing. So, yes, we thank you, Pastor McCoy. And again, welcome. We're excited to have you here at Plantation SDA. I think you'll do big things. Uh, <laughs> delighted to join the Plantation family. They're delighted, delighted. No, we're excited. Trust me, we're excited to have you. So I think I think it's going to be amazing. Um, so I just want to close out with everything. Um, for everyone watching, next week we will be discussing Exodus 28 uh, through Leviticus 13. 
So the one thing that we do want to point out is we want to encourage you to try to read a little bit of it every day um, so you can actually take in what you're reading, go back, think about the questions. And I know for myself, as an example, I know sometimes a question may not pop up in my mind, but as I go on through my next day, something pops up and I take a note. So I do think that is the best way than trying to read it all at once, you know, the cram sessions. Um, so try, if you can, and I remember um, Edward and Cassandra mentioned maybe even audio Bibles and things like that. I've taken advantage of that as well, where even I'm cooking, I have it playing in my ear and, you know, and I pause it like, oh, good question there or something like that. So just some tips for you guys to get through this, because we do want to do this through all 2021 and want to keep you with us the whole way. So I do hope that you guys um, start using some of these tips and tricks to, to be able to absorb all the information that you're getting. Uh, so next week, as I said, Exodus 28 through Leviticus 13, that will be presented by Pastor Paul Anderson and his wife, Lenny Anderson. Um, so we want you to prepare for that. Uh, Pastor McCoy, what can they expect in the next coming chapters? What's Leviticus 20, I mean, Exodus 28 through Leviticus 13 going to touch on? Right. So as we said, God, we're going to find how Israel responds to this covenant relationship that they're coming into. Will they be obedient? Um, is there any sign that they're going to honor this kind of kind of relationship? Um, that's what we're going to find out in, in the coming weeks because we're going to find the story of, of the golden calf. Um, we're going to find um, how the journey begins and how they're responding in the covenant in, in the covenant the context of the covenant relationship. Um, so that's how we're going to explore um, going forward, and also some of the, the cultic ritualistic principles as to how Israel would function. Um, in, in the religious setting, yeah. Awesome, yeah. That's that's gonna be big. I can't imagine Moses coming down off the mountain like <laughs> to see, <laughs> see the calf. Like that's what y'all do all the time. So that would be a really good discussion. Um, so let's just close out as we prepare to go into the the study for next week. Uh, Karina, would you like to pray to close again? Or sure, I'll pray to close. Perfect. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today together. Thank you for letting us have this wonderful, um, very interactive discussion. Um, I know we addressed some topics that, you know, are very difficult. So I ask you to just continue to give us understanding and knowledge as we come back next time. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked.